Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello and welcome to Afternoon Light. On today's episode, I am speaking to Professor Christy Collis. And Christy is a provost of the Australian Institute of Professional Counselors and the International College of Hotel Management. But just a few years ago, when she did her PhD, she researched the manner in which Australia tried to take possession of Antarctic territory. And that is the topic of our podcast today, Christy. So thank you for coming on Afternoon Light. Thank you for having me, Georgina. And so quite a shift in the focus of your life from Antarctica to learning and teaching. So as we were saying before, it's nice for you to revisit your PhD area of research from a few years ago. (laughs) And and what you'll find when you actually talk to any senior university administrator, we all come from disciplinary backgrounds and we all make our way into central admin over the courses of our careers. And you'll also find that we all love to talk about our discipline research because this is where we came from, where we started our careers. So I'm particularly delighted to get to speak about Antarctica today instead of my usual stuff that I talk about, which is the higher education standard (laughs) framework and compliance. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, quite different, but no doubt you're equally passionate about that. And our audience, of course, will detect that you are not a native Australian and you're from Canada. So another country that has, well, obviously a very cold natural environment, but an interest in the other end of the globe and the other Arctic, not the Antarctic, the Arctic. So you've come from that background, but decided to go down south. I have. And the ways in which countries have taken possession of vast and either sparsely or uninhabited land masses has been something that's interested me throughout my career. I think it did start because I grew up Canadian. All of us in Canada live clustered along the southern border, or most of us. And yet Canada possesses this huge slab of the Arctic Ocean and the landmass in northern Canada. I've never been there, but it figures large in the Canadian cultural imaginaries. I did my honours degree on Canadian legal geographies of the Arctic. So that is the ways in which Canadian laws created the space that is the possessed Arctic now. That continued to really interest me. I thought, wow, how have people used laws and handful of bodies to possess huge spaces of the earth? Yeah, that they don't live. They don't live on. They don't occupy. Exactly. They just sort of exactly. say, we own that over there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How does that remote possession work? Now, in the Canadian Arctic, people did live there, and that's in Canada, the Inuit people. But it always interested me how this southern group of Canadians had taken possession of that north. I then went on to do my master's degree on Australian claims to the central desert based on Terra Nullius. So again, as Australians know, that was a legal fiction because the central deserts were occupied and fully owned. But again, that was a legal geography that the British constructed in order to lay claim to this continent. Continuing in the same vein, when I went to do my PhD, I turned my attention south and started looking at Antarctica, which is 10% of the Earth's landmass. So this is a huge slab of the world. Fifth largest continent, isn't it? 
Yeah. Yeah. It's really big. It's really big. <laughs> and unlike the central deserts of Australia and the Canadian Arctic, Antarctica truly was terra nullius. It has no indigenous inhabitants and never has. It barely even has land dwelling animals. Most of the animals that live there are pelagic or living in and around the seashores. Yeah, of course. So again, my attention turned to, well, okay, how do Australians living all the way up here lay claim to 42% of that continent? How does that work? And how has that held on for all these years? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, that's quite amazing. I was listening to something and they said that the largest animal in Antarctica is like a nine millimeter midge. It is. That is the largest, which is the largest terrestrial terrestrial animal. Yeah, Yeah, terrestrial. Wow, that must be one resilient midge living in such (laughs) an hospitable land. Yeah, those midges are really tough. (laughs) To Google what it looks like. So, Christy, Antarctica is an ancient land. It sort of broke off from Gondwana. So at one stage, obviously, Australia was connected to Antarctica. But I think it would be good to start our conversation, not in the ancient world, but at least in the that early 20th century, I think, is probably where the story starts to get really, really interesting. Although I understand that Captain Cook actually did sort of at least approach Antarctica in 1775. So he knew something was there. He didn't make landfall, though, did he? No, no, he didn't make landfall, but there were a number of those early European imperial explorers who did get a sense that something was down there. And some of them came close to some of the southern ocean islands that are halfway between here and Antarctica. But it wasn't until the early 1900s that really Antarctica was seen as the last frontier for imperial endeavor. That's when things really started to pick up in terms of visitation to Antarctica. And there's that element of competition, of course, between empires. And the story of Antarctica clearly is a story of geopolitics. It's fascinating. We shouldn't, though, Christy, neglect to mention that Chile apparently bases its Antarctic claim on 15th century papal bulls. So apparently they just sort of said in the 15th century that we have all that space wherever it is, don't really know what it is, but it's Chile and there you go. Antarctica is part of the nation's domestic space, but there you go. Anyway. I'll come to that shortly um, (laughs) because that really started to get contentious in the 1950s. And in fact, those papal bulls provide some of the impetus for Australia's construction of Moston Station in 1954. So we'll come to those papal bulls. Excellent. I didn't want to miss the papal bulls. I don't even know what a papal bull is, actually. (laughs) Well, I had to look it up too because I was like, why is the Pope on a bull? I know. I'm like, is it to do with the bovine bull? (laughs) Yeah, that's what I thought. I had a vision in my mind that I thought, surely this can't be correct. (laughs) No, a papal bull was like a decree. And in the late 15th century, the Pope had said, okay, all of the land on this side of this certain line of latitude is Spain's and the rest belongs to someone else. And that is the legal doctrine in which Argentina and Chile's claims are based. But as I said, we'll come to that when we start moving through the story of Antarctica. So we're in the early 20th century, early 1900s, and this is called, I love it, this is so grand, the Heroic Age of Antarctic Exploration. And my knowledge of this is pretty much from, I feel like, year six or something like that, where we were studying Scott, Amundsen, Shackleton, Mawson, and I just remember being truly horrified, the terror of falling through these glaciers and the bitter blizzards and obviously people 
people actually dying. I mean, people whose names we are really familiar with, they, they died there and then luckily their bodies were brought back. I mean, it's scary, this heroic age. They are heroic, these people. It is. So the heroic age, as you're talking about, Georgina, is the period in the early 20th century, kind of around, I can't remember Scott's expedition dates, but it's in that early first decade. And this was the heroic age. So we can look at the heroic age of exploration in Antarctica through two different lenses. And there are two lenses that absolutely intersect. So first was the stories of the men. So Most of us by now know the stories of Scott and Amundsen racing for the South Pole and Amundsen making it first, Scott appearing on the South Pole only to find a note from Amundsen basically saying, na, 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 I got You made it. (laughs) Na, 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 na. And many of us are also familiar with the stories of Shackleton and Australia with the stories of the Australian Antarctic expedition led by Sir Douglas Mawson between 1911 and 14. These were as stories of individual men doing gnarly stuff, really stirring stories, particularly the British. They weren't very good at Arctic stuff or Antarctic stuff. They're from a green island that doesn't have a lot of glaciers, in fact, none. And they really weren't terrific at doing polar exploration, but by gum, they persevered. So they, they sure took did. horses. They had empire behind them. Yeah, They had empire. So I'll come to the geopolitics in a minute, but just as stories of people, this was pretty remarkable time. Now, Amundsen, who did make the South Pole first, was from Norway, which obviously is a culture that's better equipped to deal with polar travel. But his story as well is is a, a pretty gnarly one and one of great bravery. But these were also men of empire. So it's really important to remember, particularly when we think about some of the men who died doing Antarctic exploration, they didn't die because they were just trying to show off about what they could do. And they didn't die because they were just abstractly trying to hike over ice. They died in the service of empire. Mm. And they really believed in that empire to the core of themselves. It's why they went. It's what they were charged with doing. So the story of geopolitics and Antarctic individual endeavor remained totally interconnected. And that's something I'm going to talk about throughout this podcast today. It's interesting, though. Amundsen was an explorer, first and foremost, wasn't he? And Scott had a real interest in the scientific inquiry. I mean, I was a bit more on Team Scott than Team Munson in Australia. <laughs> and so even though you know the end of the story, you know Munson beats him and all the tragedy, you're still going for Scott in a bizarre way. But there is this wonderful anecdote about Murray Stopes asking, is it Scott to find some fossils just to show evidence that the continent's the southern continents were all connected. And even though he perishes, the box of the fossils that he successfully finds at the direction of Murray Stopes, who obviously becomes famous for family planning reasons, but was a significant scientist in her own right, that is able to be brought back with his body and, of course, then forms a very important part of the scientific research. So Scott wins. He won. <laughs> the moral yeah, <laughs> crusade. Since the very beginning in Antarctica and continuing today, the stories of science yeah. and individual people and their motivations and conservation and mining and geopolitics all remain absolutely interconnected. They're all part of the same story. So it really depends what lens you choose to look at, which lens you choose to look through as to which of those dimensions of Antarctic's history you're focusing on. And 
I think we've seen a huge amount of focus on the sort of individual heroic exploits of the men. So this is the Go Scott, oh, Emmetson, you and your Norwegian ways story. And that's pretty logical. Those are really stirring stories. Mm. They're much more interesting in many ways than discussions of geopolitics. But I do want to make it clear that most of these men were there for empire, and that meant a lot to them. And when I talk about that, sometimes people get upset. Empire isn't that popular anymore. So when I say, look, Mawson was there to give his life for the British Empire, that's what was driving him, as well as his scientific interests and his individual motivations. Sometimes when I talk about that, people get upset and they say, oh, you're besmirching his legacy. You know, he was an amazing hero. And I agree. And I also think that it would be doing a disservice to his legacy if we pretended the reason that he was there doing all this stuff didn't exist. Mm. So we have to keep it in this period in its context. This was an age of empire. The Australian early explorers in particular were motivated by imperialism. And that's okay. That's just part of the story. And that's what we're going to talk about today. They were also motivated by science and individual bravery and curiosity. It's all interconnected in this really interesting story of the Australian Antarctic Territory. Well, I think it is really important to remember that. That was a sense of patriotism and national pride. So we obviously have this heroic age of Antarctic exploration. And then once Amundsen reaches the North Pole, there's lots of activity going on. It was like the United States reaching the moon. That was it. There was a sort of also a bit of a sense of, well, we've done that now. I mean, Amundsen just left, didn't he? He was like, done. (laughs) There was a bit of that, but through the 1920s, so after the heroic age kind of concludes with, again, the Australian Antarctic expedition of 1911 to 1914 being another significantly heroic expedition in which men lost their lives, overwintered unexpectedly. Once that period really concludes, and as you say, Georgina, people were like, well, okay, someone's made it to the South Pole, so what next? Through the 1920s, Norway, France, and Argentina, as well as Australia or Britain, all advanced claims to Antarctica. So on the backs of this heroic age of exploration, the nation states began to lay claim to the land that had been discovered, as it's called, by these explorers. Similarly, in the 1920s, the country of the United States rejected all of those claims and said, nah, imperialism's over. We're not going to accept your claims to Antarctica based on this handful of men who were there 10 years ago. Forget it. So starting as early as the 1920s, there was some geopolitical tension emerging around Antarctica, around countries who claimed, based on the activities of their heroic explorers and papal bulls, and the U.S., who was rejecting these claims. In 1926, to address this tension, the British Imperial Conference decided to solidify its claim to Antarctica by dividing up its claim to Antarctica between Britain, Australia and New Zealand. Mm. They were doing this in part because it was too expensive and large an area for Britain to try to administer, particularly after World War One, which had cost the nation a lot. And it was important for the emerging sovereign states of Australia and New Zealand to take possession of their own empires. Mawson referred to Antarctica as the son of the younger son. So it was like Britain was the big granddaddy, Australia was the son, and then Antarctica was to be the next son in this sort of line of patrilineal possession. With that in mind, Mawson headed the Banzare expedition, which is the British, Australia and New Zealand research expedition of 1929 to 1931 to Antarctica. Now, Mawson was a petrologist. As a scientist, his job was looking for mineral rich 
rocks that can be turned into oil. Australia has always been a mineral extraction economy, and Mawson was certainly a very important part of that. He was looking for oil. He was looking for what they could find along the coast of Antarctica. But in Banzare, Mawson also had a really important overarching purpose. And that was the Australians and the British said, okay, well, look, we've claimed a huge portion of Antarctica it, based on the, some, it was, some activity. Was it over half or was it? Yeah, it's over half. Because Australia um, gets 42%, claimed. doesn't it? Australian Antarctica. Yes, so yeah, after the British Imperial Conference, when they carved it up, Australia got 42% of the continent. Mm. So Australia actually does lay claim to 42% of an offshore continent, which a lot of Australians don't really think about. That's Um, a lot. (laughs) Yeah, so they started to feel a bit worried about their claims because they said, gee, none of us have even been down there for 20 years. We had a few expeditions. We laid claim, but like, how can we keep claiming this land when we really aren't there? Yes, because so, possession is nine-tenths of the law. So what if the Soviets, or yes. well, not the Soviets at that stage, but what if the US has snuck down there or the Russians or the Norwegians? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the US were busy saying, no, no, we don't accept anyone's claims. That's old stuff. No one's Antarctica. Britain, Australia and New Zealand said, oh, yes, we do. So down went Mawson as the head of Banzari in 1929 to 1931. Their job was very much imperial. Mm. Uh, Their job was to map the coast. So part of the way that you take possession at law of new territory is to map it. So their job was mapping the coastline, but also to perform acts of possession. So that was a really key part of Banzari was to take Mawson's body, physically get it onto shore. Or in the case of Banzari, sometimes they couldn't really get close to shore. So they had to stick him on an island or sometimes just touch the shore with an oar from their boat because it was too hard it's to get ashore. It's quite childish, isn't it? It's like sort of a, <laughs> to raise, like a tiki. Yeah, to raise the flag. <laughs> you touch it. Yeah, he had to raise the flag. He had to do a certain legal ritual. So the legal ritual requires raising the flag, in that case, the British flag, reading out a proclamation so of possession. This is where you it. got the flag and you sort of shoved the pole into the ground. Because didn't the Americans then start later on, and sorry, I'm jumping ahead, but they started flying planes and just shooting a flag into the ground? I mean, seriously, yes. cheating, yes. cheating. So, yes, <laughs> the Americans did do flyover claims, as did the Germans a few times later on. Yeah, in which they attached flag poles to cannonballs as good weight and chucked them out of the plane. And the guy would shout the proclamation of possession <laughs> that no one else could really hear. And they took some pictures of it, marked it on a map. And that was their basis of territorial claim. It seems childish and silly, but these are actual legal rituals. So I'm going to go back in time now for a minute and talk about the Berlin Conference of 1884-1885. This is when the imperial countries of that time, so the big European imperial states, actually decided on what are the mechanisms to establish territorial possession. That's when they came up with, okay, you have to touch the land with the explorer's body. The explorer has to be invested by the government with the power to lay claim. That invested body has to touch the land. The flag has to be raised. A proclamation has to be read. It has to be recorded in some form. It has to be mapped. And that has to be returned to the Imperial Center. So that's the Berlin Conference established. That's discovery. Was the United States part of that conference or was that just European countries? That's a good question, Georgie. Because maybe that's why the United States didn't necessarily recognize 
<laughs> that's all right. It could well be. That's a good question. I don't know U.S. history well enough, so I'll look that up. Now, just to complicate things further and to bring us closer to the story of Mawson Station, I'll let you know that when it comes to vast territories being claimed through these discovery rituals, discovery rituals only establish what's called inchoate titles. So that kind of means semi-title. The Berlin Conference decided on this because Europeans were just cruising around in ships, putting guys ashore, touching their foot and saying, yay, it's all ours, and then sailing away never to return. Yeah. So the Berlin Conference said, no, that just establishes the beginning of title sure. if you perform those rituals. So Banzari and Mawson established that initial ritual of possession. But the Berlin Conference also established that inchoate title needs to be what's called at law perfected by occupation. So in order to really finish and complete your claim to that land, you must colonize it. However, let's go back to Banzari when they're still establishing their inchoate title. I'm interested in this colonization of Antarctica given the climate. <laughs> it's going to be an yes, interesting we are, story. we are getting close. Um, <laughs> we're getting close. So Australia's title, its inchoate title, was based on Mawson's work in the AAE of 1911 to 14 and Banzari of 1929 to 1931. Those are the bases of Australia's claim to Antarctica. Now, things went quiet for a little while. The world was busy having a world war. Attention largely left Antarctica, although there was a little bit of activity down there, but not a lot to speak of from Australia's perspective. But in 1946 and 1947, the U.S. did something really aggressive in Antarctica that totally scared the pants off of Australia, which is they ran a mission called Operation High Jump, which deployed 4,700 men to land in what is now McMurdo Station, to do mapping, to build buildings, and to really commence occupying Antarctica in a way that had never been seen before. Never had there been that scale of visitation to Antarctica. And Christy, what was the reason behind that? Was that sort of early, very early Cold War? Was that sort of yes. post-World War II? Okay, now we just need to cement our complete and utter global power? Absolutely. This is the beginning of the U.S. Cold War period of the U.S., as you say, Georgina, establishing itself as a global superpower. So this is the U.S. saying we are going to make ourselves felt on this continent. They continued to be very loud through this period about rejecting Australia's claims and rejecting all of the claims to Antarctica based on discovery. They said, well, you may have had some discovery expeditions, but there's no one here. So we just recognize that you showed up and read some proclamations, but we're here now. In response, in 1946, so the same year that Operation High Jump traveled to Australia, Antarctica decided to colonize Australia. I said that in the wrong way. <laughs> Australia decided wow, to they? colonize Antarctica. <laughs> was that midge, wasn't it? Quiet. The midge. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a very quiet colonization yeah. of Australia. No, in 1946, in response to Operation High Jump, Australia decides to colonize Antarctica. Australia was feeling quite anxious, obviously, about its claim with America down there on all the Americans occupying Antarctica, the Russian pressure on Antarctica. And Australia said, oh, like all we have is these old proclamations read by Mawson. We really need to perfect our claim through what's called effective occupation or colonization. So in 1954, the Australians built Mawson Station. This was Australia's act of colonization of Antarctica. 
And it's real anchor. It's physical anchor for territorial possession. So it's from Mawson Station that Australia's perfected title to Antarctic territory began to flow. Talking about Mawson Station, the first years there were, as in the heroic age, very difficult. That first year in 1954, 10 men stayed over winter. And they were there doing science. They did a lot of measurements. They did geomagnetics. This was a scientific station, certainly. But it was also the Australian government didn't really care that much about the science of Antarctica. They really cared about possession and perfecting their title. Because there was certainly a sense, wasn't there, that there were, well, as you said before, Mawson had been there trying to find if there was oil, uranium, coal. There was a sense that there was a huge potential to exploit the landmass, wasn't there? But that was it was just all geopolitics then. Well, geopolitics is always connected to exploitation. There was certainly a sense during the 50s that this is going to be the next big gold rush for Australia. This will be a bonanza. What they did start to figure out was any kind of mineral extraction was going to be really, really difficult. That's what those men started to realize. They said, look, we're doing our geology. We're finding potentially mineralific rocks, but... How the heck are we going to set up a mining operation down here? But nonetheless, that was part of the impetus for the kinds of science they were doing. Now, when we're talking about Mawson Station, I should remind everyone that Mawson Station is nowhere near Australia. It's actually due south of Iran and Turkmenistan. So it's not proximate to Australia at all. This is a land claim based on a station that's really, really distant from the parent country of Australia. So often Australians think, well, it's it's right to the south of us. Of course we own it. Some of the Australian Antarctic claim is due south of Australia, but a lot of it isn't, including Mawson Station, which is really distant from Australia. In fact, it's much closer to Africa. So why was that site chosen then, Christy? Why did they set up Mawson Station due south of Africa and not due south of Australia? Well, a couple of reasons. One was they could actually manage to put a shore there. There aren't that many places in eastern Antarctica where you can put in a boat. Eastern Antarctica is a giant glacier, and the glacier just comes down from the continental landmass and hits the Southern Ocean. You've got what are called catabatic winds, which is cold air sinks, right? So the cold air from the South Pole pours down the glacier. It has absolutely nothing to obstruct it, so it rages down thousands of kilometers of ice until it hits that coast. And it's absolutely brutal. So Mawson Station is in a horrendously windy spot getting blasted by those catabatics, but it did have a viable harbor where they could put in a ship. So that was part of the rationale. The other rationale was geopolitical. How on earth could Australia be claiming land that was way over there south of Iraq or south of Iran? How could they be doing that? Establishing a colony there was one way to answer that anxiety. Yeah. So in 1954, I'll just lay the kind of geopolitical scene in which Mawson Station was built. At this point, we have 75% of Antarctica claimed by five states. So that's Norway, Britain, New Zealand, France, and Australia, based on the laws of discovery. So 75% is based on that laws of discovery. 13% of Antarctica, on the other hand, was claimed by Argentina and Chile on the basis of those ancient papal bulls. Oh, yes. So, and the British, Argentinian and Chilean claims do overlap, which has always caused terrible problems on the Antarctic Peninsula. because the Falklands. Yes, that's part of that tension. So Argentina and Chile said, look, the Pope gave this to us in the 1400s, so... 
Nee. And <laughs> the British said, well, we discovered it. So, nee. so here we had a kind of conflict between two different modes of territorial legal possession. In 1954, we also had the U.S. and the USSR by this time who said, no, Antarctica is terra nullius. No one owns it. No title has been perfected. We don't recognize any land claims to this continent. At the same time, the emerging state of India began to make a lot of noise about Antarctica as well. And India said, hey, it is not fair that imperialism is taking over this last continent You white people have taken over everything so far. You've got to stop. This has got to end. India in 1956 very contentiously claimed that no one owned Antarctica and that no one should be able to, that it should be something called Terra Communis, which is a land owned commonly by humanity rather than Terra Nullius, which is just land owned by nobody. Christy, did China have a view on this? I mean, we're talking about the sort of here, the countries who... India and the United States, Soviet Union, Britain, France, I guess Spain through Argentina and Chile. You've got these imperial countries, these big global powers. I mean, where was China? Presumably they had China a doesn't start to emerge until the late 1950s in Antarctic politics and colonization. So they're just about to come. Yeah. As all this tension is happening in 1954, the Chinese are getting organized, but not there yet. So in 1954, we had these four totally different versions of Antarctic space floating around in geopolitics, in national economies, and so on. So we had the Discovery, the Papal Bulls, the Terra Nullius, and the Terra Communis. Australia decided to stick with its claim, and thus Mawson Station was built in 1954. Australia said, no, Discovery and subsequent colonization or effective occupation are valid, and we therefore own 42% of Antarctica. In 1957, the Australians went on to build Davis Station, and in 1959, they took over an old American base called Wilkes. Were they better weather? I'm very um, worried about yes, these winds. Windy. <laughs> yes, not as windy. Mawson Station is one of the most terrible coastal stations at which to live in Antarctica. It's pretty ferocious. Davis and Wilkes were a little bit milder, although it seems <laughs> it's um, very relative to call Antarctic stations mild. Nonetheless, these were a little bit more inhabitable. Now, this brings us to 1957, which was a big turning point in Antarctica and a big turning point for Australian Antarctica. And this was that in 1957 and 1958, the world declared the International Geophysical Year. So this is a kind of back end of the Cold War. The world was really frightened. What was going to happen with the U.S. and USSR? Was the whole world going to go into World War III? The Cold War tensions were really, really serious and frightening. And the International Geophysical Year, or IGY, was one way that the United Nations and the countries of the world decided to try to address that Cold War tension and actually override it. So what they said in the International Geophysical Year is that this is a year of peace and science and that scientists from all of the countries around the world will come together and do geopolitically neutral science together in harmony and cooperation to show that the world actually can get along So it was a really noble idea and it really worked. Did it work? Really? Yeah. Amazing. In the International Geophysical Year, 30,000 scientists from 66 states traveled to Antarctica. Now, Antarctica, I should say, was a particularly hot spot for the IGY because it was a good place to measure geomagnetical fields, which was a hot topic at the time. So 30,000 scientists descended on Antarctica as, again, from 66 countries. Mm. And they did science together. Yeah. They were collaborative. 
Australia didn't kick out other countries who built stations. The USSR built stations in the Australian Antarctic Territory, but Australia agreed to allow them in the spirit of cooperation and peace and science. And the IGY is often seen as a real turning point in Antarctica, and it was. Was the idea behind that like the International Space Station? We've got to look beyond the geopolitics and there is some common good for humanity in the discoveries here. But you can imagine, though, there'd still have been a little bit of espionage down there. I'm sure there were Americans were spying on the Soviets, even if they were. Yes, you're exactly right, Georgina. So much as I would like to say the International Geophysical Year represents the triumph of neutral science over geopolitics, not quite. No. So there were two big outcomes of the IGY. The first is that the Americans built McMurdo Station on the South Pole. This was meant to be a sciencey thing, but it was actually a fairly aggressive move by America because by sitting on the South Pole, they managed to sit on every single other country's land claim at the same time because those all intersect like the middle of a pie on the South Pole. So that was America's way of saying, okay, we're now occupying all of your claims at once because we don't recognize them. So America was still using that IGY to be fairly aggressive in its stance about Antarctica being terra nullius. The USSR, as I said, built stations in the Australian Antarctic Territory. And by the end of the IGY, there were more Russians than Australians occupying the Australian Antarctic Territory. And both the US and the USSR declared terra nullius, which seemed kind of peaceful. But terra nullius does mean it's still available. Hmm. So they had up their sleeves the idea that, look, we're declaring it terra nullius. We won't recognize anyone else's claims. But that does mean it's just sitting there waiting to be discovered. One other thing came out of the IGY, however, and this is what really shapes Antarctica today, and that's the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. This was a really, really big deal, and it's still the treaty that governs Antarctica today. So all of the nations that had participated in the IGY, plus all of the claimants, sat down and came up with this treaty. And the treaty is a really curious compromise, and it's this weird compromise that still characterizes Australia's position on Antarctica today. So here's what the treaty did. It declared Antarctica an international site of peace and science in the spirit of the IGY. And we know now that all of the bases down there are still there, primarily conducting science. But Australia said, look, this is great. Yay, kumbaya, peace and science, holding hands. But we're not giving up our claim. So the Antarctic Treaty said, "Okay, for the seven of you who have claims to Antarctic space, you can hang on to them. But no one else has to legally recognize them. So to date, the only people that recognize Australia's claim to Antarctica as a true land claim are the four other states who have Antarctic land claims based on discovery and colonization. In the eyes of the rest of the world, legally, Antarctica remains terra nullius. It is not owned by anyone. But Australia was allowed to hang on to its claim under the Antarctic Treaty. This was the compromise they reached where everyone could get along. So Australia, since then has continued to occupy Antarctica. Continuous occupation is really important for that possession. They have their bases, but other countries such as China have built bases in the Australian Antarctic Territory because they do not recognize Australia's claim to that space. And that's the situation we're still in today. And that's the situation that's anchored in Mawson Station as that first site of Australian colonization from which Australian effective occupation and title flowed. Are there any issues around other countries' stations in the Australian Antarctic Territory? I mean, did Australia ever try and challenge the Soviet Union or the Chinese? 
They haven't challenged them because at law they really can't, because in the eyes of China, that is open territory owned by no one, so they can put a base there if they want. But there is a little bit of sort of boundary work done by the Australians because they do ask for the right of inspection of other countries' stations in the Australian Antarctic Territory to make sure they're following the environmental terms of the treaty and so on. So Australia's possession has really turned into more of a dynamic of stewardship and environmental care. And it's through that lens that Australia does a lot of its kind of not quite policing, but checking out of other stations in the Australian Antarctic Territory, letting them know they're keeping their eye on them because they are trying to uphold the environmental standards of the treaty. And at the same time, to remind others that they do claim the AAT as their own. What about the militarisation of Antarctica? I mean, that in 1959 would have been an absolutely huge concern. How is that police then, Christy? Because the treaty says you can't, it's only peaceful uses only, but Okay, sure. The yes. treaty might say that. But. So, yeah, yeah, the treaty says no militarization and some articles to the treaty that were added in subsequently says no commercial mining. It says that the treaty says Antarctica is for scientific purposes and there's rights of visitation to other countries' bases, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These are the terms of the treaty and they've largely worked. But Georgina, your question is a good one because there is no enforcement mechanism. The UN could say, naughty, naughty, stop militarizing. Um, But there really isn't a physical means in Antarctica of preventing activity that violates the treaty. It's a difficult one. So far, the treaty has held. Mm. So far, there hasn't been militarization or commercial mining. Whether that's because of the treaty or because it's just too damn hard to do that stuff in Antarctica still is an open question. You wonder if it's the latter, ultimately. It depends on how optimistic I'm feeling each day. Sometimes I feel very like, oh, Antarctica, this is wonderful. What a good example of humanity getting together and being collaborative. Other times when I'm feeling more cynical, I think, yeah, as soon as mineral extraction becomes economically viable, it will be on. Now, the Madrid Protocol expressly forbids mining in Antarctica until I think mid this century. But that will be a tension that will continue to hang around in Antarctica. And that brings me to one last bit about Australia and Mawson Station and the Antarctic claim, which is Australia did raise some legal eyebrows around the world in 2012. I have to be really careful about legal language when it said that because it owned 42% of Antarctica, it also owned all of the underwater continental shelf off of that claim as a result of the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. Now, many countries around the world said, no, you're expanding your claim and the Antarctic Treaty expressly forbids any new claims or expansion of existing claims. Other countries said, no, Australia, you can't expand your claim to this very mineral rich. There's a lot of manganese on that seabed off Antarctica. Other countries said, you can't do that. You're violating the treaty. But Australia said, no, it's not a new claim. It's just attached to our existing claim. So we kind of had a right to it already. And that remains a geopolitical tension. It was very contentious at the time, and it still sits there on the back burner as something that's not entirely resolved. And this is let alone the supplies of Patagonian toothfish, no doubt, that are in those waters as well. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, then we move into jurisdiction around the high seas and whaling and fishing 
And that is, again, part of this story based on Australia's claim of an exclusive economic zone off its Antarctic territory. But we also move into debates over the law of the high seas, which is slightly beyond my remit today. But you keep seeing these tensions pop up. The Antarctic Treaty, as I said, and the general vibe down there is good. It has forestalled mining. It has forestalled militarization but it won't forever. Mm. And it is the work of geopoliticians, Antarctic administrators around the world to continue this quite delicate negotiation of the Antarctic Treaty. But one thing remains very firm for Australia, and it's something based on the body of Douglas Mawson conducting his explorations and on Mawson Station, which they continue to occupy. And that is that Australia owns 42% of Antarctica. Australia will always, well, not will always, but will for the foreseeable future continue to be very vocal and firm about that claim. Christy, I'm interested finally in understanding the level of investment in Antarctica. And I mean, appreciate your PhD looked at things in the past more so than today, but it's all very well. You said the Antarctic Treaty had, was it 50 or so parties? 66 participants in the IGY and a lower number of original signatories to the Antarctic Treaty. But over time, many, many countries have signed that treaty and are now parties to it. And there's obviously a large international community of scientists on Antarctica at any one time in all these different stations. But who is investing the most? Is it Australia investing the most in financial terms or in personnel terms or is it very varied? I'd say in just sheer dollar terms that the larger investors would be the US and China at this point. But Australia continues to invest substantially in recently purchased a new icebreaker to service its Antarctic territories, the Nuyina. And this continues to be a core item in Australia's federal budget. So America and China are spending more. They've got more people there. But Australia also continues to be a significant investor in Antarctica. Here's what I'll leave you with. What That's really interesting to think about. And it's the kind of space that the Australian Antarctic Territory is. And I'll focus on Mawson Station again, because that's kind of the anchor for what I'm talking about today. Mawson Station is a legal colony. It is there to cement Australia's claim to 42% of another continent. It's a legal and geopolitical assertion. It's also a scientific station. So the people who go to Mawson Station are passionate about environmentalism, about preserving Antarctic nature, about understanding the natural dynamics of the world through visiting Antarctica. These people aren't there sort of waving around Australian flags and saying we lay claim. They're there because they deeply, deeply care about the natural environment of Antarctica. It's also a historical site for Australians to memorialize the really brave actions of those early explorers, Mawson, and some of whom died there. So it's a really curious compilation of a few different types of space. That's what the Australian Antarctic Territory is today. It's a site that's recognized by only a few, rejected by most. As I said, a site of legal geopolitical claim and a site of deep care for the environment. So it's a very complex space, the Australian Antarctic Territory, even though there aren't very many Australians there in the grand scheme of things. And that's the Australian Antarctic Territory we have today. 
Oh, well, that's a wonderful note to end on, Christy. It raises so many more questions, but I hope has given our listeners some food for thought and a real appreciation of what went on there, not just the heroic age of exploration, but the geopolitics behind it and the enduring complexity of the current situation in Antarctica. But as you say, for the time being, at least, it is being managed for the common good of humanity. We hope for a long time into the future. Christy Collis, thank you so much for joining us on Afternoon Light. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Georgina, and thank you everyone for listening. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.